Suddenly, it's a federal and state holiday. Very quickly, Juneteenth has been made the nation's newest holiday, and all sorts of people are grasping it. Some businesses have already given their employees off, so a lot of people won't be working today. Mike DeWine will be, though. He has a briefing, so I guess he's not celebrating Juneteenth. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer for a Friday. Happy Friday. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston and Layla Tassi. You're always so cheerful on a Friday podcast. I mean, I think we're always cheerful, <laughs> but extra on Friday. Extra cheerful. Okay, well, let's uh, make you more cheerful by getting through this. What are the real-life ramifications of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's lifting of his overarching coronavirus state of emergency? Laura Johnston, there were so many of these things it was hard to keep track of, but there was one umbrella that kind of governed a lot of things. And while all of the little pieces have been eroded away, the big umbrella now is gone. Yeah, the emergency order is lifted. This has been in place since March 9th, I believe, 2020. And the thing is, it sounds like a really big deal, but it's actually a little bit more symbolic than meaningful because so many things have already been lifted. And Ohio state of emergency was fairly limited compared to other states. Much of the order had to do with procurement or how the state ordered a large amount of supplies. So this way, uh, they didn't have to bid large purchases. They could just buy the PPE that they needed to and anything else they needed for the coronavirus without having to get bogged down in getting approval from a board of control or spending from the legislature. So Mike DeWine said yesterday when he 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 did this when he announced his Vaximillion winners, he said in some states it means a lot of different things, but Ohio has a very, very narrow meaning. There's one thing that um, Bob Higgs is working on a story about the significance of is that the emergency order allowed cities to collect income tax from people who weren't working in their borders. And that now, now that the order is over, starts the clock on when that will end. Yeah. And that actually is the biggest ramification of all, because that's real money for a whole lot of people who all want that money back. So it's a couple of months, like it's 60 days. And then Cleveland's no longer allowed to take that money. And I bet constitutionally they never were. We'll have to see what Bob's story says about the way that's going to play out. That's going to cause all sorts of headaches for companies that have people working maybe two days a week in their offices and three days a week at home. And right. gets back to the idea. Why don't we just have a countywide municipal tax and get rid of all this confusion instead of the balkanized system we have? There, and There's a couple other things that DeWine lifted yesterday. The last visitation orders related to nursing homes and assisted living facilities. They'll still have to follow federal government rules and guidance, but there are some testing requirements. The local health departments and hospitals still have to report their coronavirus virus cases and beds, like who's in the ICU. So those will continue. One thing I thought was tied to it was the e-check and renewing driver's license and registrations. But actually back in the fall, that changed. That deadline is July 1st. So if you've got an overdue license, you need to get that done fairly quickly. Really? So there's no more exemption for that. If your tags are expired, they're officially expired. Yep. Yep. Starting July 1st. Okay. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
Hey, today is the last day for the survey that we are doing to find out what you think of this podcast. We're trying to learn a few things about how you engage with it so that we can spread it to others. I want to thank everybody who did it. We're doing this with multiple podcasts, but this audience is responding in a far higher percentage than any of our other podcasts. That speaks to the goodwill of the people who listen to it. This is the last day. We would like to hear from you. Help us out. It's at www.cleveland.com slash the CLE survey, www.cleveland.com slash the CLE survey. Why did Cuyahoga County Executive Armand Budish give $3.4 million of the public's money to university hospitals with no public debate, no consideration for the county council? Don't we have checks and balances in this county? Can he just give money to whoever he wants to? Layla Tassi, this seems like it is so wrong. It's beyond belief. Yeah, you know, this one immediately triggered Courtney Astolfi's spidey sense. (laughs) Budish was delivering some remarks during a press conference earlier this month when he said that he had, quote, directed about $3.4 million to university hospitals for a treatment and recovery program for babies and mothers exposed to opioids. So immediately, Courtney thought, okay, well, a program like that sounds worthy and important and laudable, but what do you mean directed? (laughs) You know, awarding a large sum of money to any business or nonprofit is usually decided through a formal selection process that requires final approval from county council. Budish can't just unilaterally decide to give money to whomever he pleases? What about other nonprofits or hospitals that might have wanted to compete for that money? So it turns out this money is part of the county's settlement with drug manufacturer Johnson & Johnson regarding the opioid crisis. In addition to to millions in a cash payout to the county, J&J agreed to this $3.4 million in charitable contributions to programs in Cuyahoga County that deal specifically with opioid-exposed babies and their families. But the settlement doesn't note whether the company or the county gets to make the decision of who gets the money. Budish's office says he made the decision, but it sounds like they're trying to say that because the money technically isn't passing through the county coffers and it's a charitable gift coming straight from J&J, it's not subject to any of the county's funding procedures. County Council President Purnell Jones Jr. was interested in finding out more about this when Courtney told him about it. He He was really caught off guard. He asked the county's law department to issue an opinion on whether council should have a say in this matter. What what I think is really questionable also about this is the fact that Metro Health, the county's hospital, has its own program for the treatment of babies born with opioid dependence. It's called Mom's House, and it's a supportive housing program for pregnant women and mothers with newborns who are recovering from substance use disorder. The The county was very evasive as always, and would just not answer Courtney's questions about whether they had done any research on other worthy programs that could have received this money before settling on UH. So uh, still, I think this is going to be ripe for follow-up. There's a couple things. We should remind people why we have the current form of government, because this is what Frank Russo, the, the former county auditor, used to do when he unilaterally would award contracts. And it turned out he was getting payoffs for it, a lot of payoffs for it, a million bucks. That's the danger of when you have one person controlling purse strings. Our whole reform of county government was to not do that anymore, to always have checks and balances. So so whatever the law department says, what Armand Budish has done is completely violated the spirit 
of what the voters did when they reformed county government because they don't want one person controlling millions of dollars who knows what deals he's making. The second thing is when all this money was announced, when the, the settlement came about, immediately UH, the Cleveland Clinic, were lining up to get a big block of it. And and Budish was talking to them about it. The county council found out and, and order was restored. But but that's what happens when you have these private little chats, these deals get made. The fact that Metro Health didn't even get a chance to make a case for it, it's right. ridiculous. I mean, there's just no way this is appropriate. And it's just more of that political shenanigans of Armin Budish. This is a guy we've seen time and again play politics with his job. I heard recently he removed Chris Ronane from the Port Authority. Chris Ronane, University Circle president, has long been a member of the Port Authority. He's the visionary from the design of the lakefront. But he might run against Budish. Guess what? He's gone. It's like, mm-hmm. that's that's just not okay. And, and Armin Budish handing out $3.4 million dollars with no review, no oversight, no discussion, it's reprehensible. So we need to keep pushing on this. I'm sure our editorial board will be discussing it. You know, it's become like the installment of the week for the egregious behavior of Armin Budish. So, so let me but ask this, you, what do you think of that argument that he's making, that it technically is not money in the county's possession? It's not the county's, you know, it's it's not, it's the county's not acting as a pass-through for this. But, it's yeah, go but, ahead. But Layla, if the county is determining where it goes, that's why we have this form of government mm-hmm. so that one person doesn't determine where it goes. You know, Frank Russo could have set up something with the uh, with tax certificates where he's selling the tax certificates and he figures out some way to direct that money where it never comes into the county coffers. That's not OK. It's never yeah, right, OK right, to right. not mm-hmm. have oversight. And and, you know, it is the this was a settlement because of the abuse of the public. And this part of the settlement was supposed to go to a nonprofit. That should be a public discussion. It's public policy. He's so far out of line on what he did here. And he knows it. That's why they're not talking about it. They didn't solicit anybody. He just gave it to somebody in some private handshake deal. That's what we tried to stamp out in this county. I, you know, this is look, we, we're, we're being very careful about how often we ask Lee Weingart, the only announced opposition to Budish in next year's campaign. We ought to ask him what he thinks, because this is this is what mm-hmm. the election is going to be about next year. Do you want a guy who constantly makes these kind of deals and then is secretive about it? Great work by Courtney Estelfi in finding this. That's real money. I mean, this is the kind of thing that so offended voters during the Demora Russo years. And here we got a guy pulling his own version of it. It's 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 scummy, and we need to put more spotlight on it. Mm-hmm. You're listening to this week in the CLE. We learned about the Russian cybercrime group named Trickbot in an indictment a while back. But now we're finding out that local schools got harmed by it and lost some money. Laura Johnston, which ones? Yeah, so Avon Schools is the one that lost the biggest. In 2017, Russian hackers looted $471,000 in hours in a series of illicit wire transfers from those bank accounts. The next day they tried again. This was unsuccessful, thankfully, but they were trying for $700,000. Two years later, they hit up Coventry District in Summit County near the Portage Lakes. They didn't get any money, but cost the district about $80,000 to update the technology afterward. What they think is that a 
elementary school teacher opened an email they shouldn't have. And then they, they reacted very quickly. They basically unplugged every computer they had to stop it, but they still had $80,000 worth of damage. And there was another, um, couple of these, there were businesses and governments hit all over the place. We don't know how TrickBot chose their victims, but the allegations that are included in these federal charges are the government's first legal assault on TrickBot. This is an international cybercrime network that infected millions of computers globally, seized tens of millions of dollars from unsuspecting banks, government, and businesses. And officials are are worried. I mean, look at what happened with Ohio's unemployment system this year. They're spending the summer, a lot of these uh, schools and governments, trying to figure out measures to stop the attacks from happening in the future. And we should point out, this isn't the ransomware that's been rife of late and actually hit the Cleveland airport a year or two ago. This was just getting into their system and Mm -hmm. draining their funds. I mean, it's a different kind of of theft. Uh, And we do have somebody who who was involved in this or is accused of being involved in this for some reason, stupidly traveled through the United States. So the feds grabbed her and she's charged in federal court here. And it's through that case that John Caniglia was able to learn about these older attacks on the uh, the school systems. Yeah, her name is Alawita, and she's a Latvian national. She's 50-something years old, and she's in a Youngstown prison right now. But there's a whole bunch of people they think are involved in this, and they're in the Ukraine or Russia, so they don't really have a good handle on how to get them. Uh, but yeah, this is going to be a case that we're going to watch and see you know, what we can learn from it. But um, TurkBot also got $750,000 in wire transfers from a real estate business in North Canton. So it, it does seem like there's a bunch of, of Northeast Ohio businesses in here, but we're talking about schools in Bennington, Vermont, Eastland, Texas, a country club in Lindsburg, Virginia. I mean, it just seems really random. Well, and President Biden, when he met with Vladimir Putin this mm-hmm. week, drilled in on this. And of course, Putin says, we, we don't have a problem. This, we're not doing anything here. I mean, all of these schemes are tracing back to, to countries under his control. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the U.S. begins to fight back, which was the veiled threat by Biden. Like, get this under the control or, you know, we're going to end up with cyber war. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. It's not just Ohio Senate Republicans who are trying to stop cities from providing high-speed broadband to unserved areas. Kind of a bad thing we've discussed in this podcast. President Joe Biden's Treasury Department also is. What does this mean for Ohio's trying to bring broadband to everybody, Leila Atassi? Well, so it seems the problem lies in the set of rules governing the use of the $1.9 trillion in American Rescue Plan funds that are flowing into cities now. One rule stipulates that Rescue Act money can't be used to extend broadband service as long as a wired option already exists nearby, even if that option is not affordable. A second rule requires the money to be spent on delivering a premium level of service that far exceeds the federal standard, but that's a requirement that's impractical when the goal is to provide adequate and affordable service. You know, so as you said, Chris, the effect of these regulations are, are compounded by the fact that Republicans in the Ohio legislature are looking to eliminate $190 million in proposed state funding for Internet expansion and to restrict the ability of cities to operate their own programs. But if the pandemic has taught us anything, it's it's how important high speed broadband is to a highly functioning society. We need it for work. We need it for school. We need it for staying informed. We need it for just basic communication and connectivity to the world. And there's still far too many communities that don't have access to high-speed internet. 
the Greater Cleveland Partnership is among the civic organizations speaking out about these government attempts to perpetuate the digital divide. Biju Shah, chief executive officer of the partnership, uh, told Pete Krause that there could be several reasons for the Treasury Department rules, such as pressure from the private sector, a focus on rural needs, or a desire to future-proof networks so that they take so they so it takes longer for them to become obsolete. But the nonprofits that are working to connect low-income neighborhoods and provide them with affordable in- internet service see all of this as a, a an attempt by for-profit industry to block competition. And you know what's what's just ex- just astounding about this? Th- these these programs to connect uh, to to provide broadband. This is this is one of the major things that people that cities had been planning to do with this stimulus money. So this is uh, um, this is kind of just a, an astounding uh, revelation. Um, so I, I urge people to go take a look at Pete's story. It's it's uh, it's really right. interesting. My favorite part of this is, and I'm not even sure it's covered that deeply in Pete's story, but my favorite part of this is that AT&T, I think, has been watching what's happened to First Energy, and they are running around telling everybody, (laughs) we had nothing to do with this. We don't support it. We didn't do it in the Ohio Senate. We're not doing it in Washington. Don't look at us. We don't want this. This is bad. It turns out in Ohio, it was Spectrum, Charter Communications, that did the lobbying, Uh um, and they're now ducking it because... They, they don't want to be the, in the in the crosshairs either. The, the other thing is, is what, what's sad about this is this is a universal Republicans, Democrats, rich, poor. Everybody agrees we need to do this. But yet somehow the, the, the Treasury people writing the rules decided to insert this. And it, and it sounds like from what I understand, it was just somebody being a little overzealous and, and it's not some intentional thing. So they're working, they're proposed rules. They're not final and they're working to, uh, what do, what do you mean overzealous? It. What do, what do you mean by that? that? That somebody was just trying to bring a, a rigor to how the money is spent so that it wouldn't be squandered. And so they put extra guidelines in that would some, and somehow I, th- this is from what I've heard from people talking to people in Washington. Like, is this something coming from the AT&Ts of the world? And they're saying, you know, not really. It doesn't sound like it's something Joe Biden would be in favor of, right? I mean, he's going to want to give broadband I mean, yeah, to that's, poor people. That, that's true. But I feel like it transparently is benefiting for-profit companies. So I, I find, I find it hard to look at it any other way, but, but, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe there was some, uh, well, AT&T has convinced everybody that they're not the ones that are pushing it, <laughs> which I think is fascinating. Um, we'll have to see what happens. I do believe it's coming out of the, uh, the Senate budget. Too many people are offended by that. Of course, there's 27 other pieces of legislation they shoved into that budget that ought to come out too and probably will result in some lawsuits if they don't. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How have Ohio cities and counties taken a page from Governor Mike DeWine's playbook on using incentives to persuade people to get coronavirus vaccinations? And let's talk about it. Who's the latest winner of DeWine's Vaxamillion sweepstakes? Laura Johnston. Well, this Vaximillion idea spawned all sorts of copycat lottery incentives across the country and in these cities and counties and health boards. So they've got free McDonald's to cash, even 
passes to a shooting range. The idea is not to change people's minds if they have researched the idea of vaccination and decide they don't want it, but encourage people who just haven't gotten around to it. So Columbus on on Monday approved their vaccine green initiative. They'll give about $100 to residents who are vaccinated under the program. You can't get it if you were already vaccinated. It's only new ones. But they call it a vaccination affordability program. They're saying this kind of pays for people's time or their childcare or transportation so that they can come and get the shot. And the idea is to low, you know, locate clinics where there are lower vaccination rates. One place they were giving out gas cards, but people didn't have cars. And the health board was like, well, that was really dumb. So they ended up walking to area businesses to buy gift cards to give to people. And, and Stark County is the one that partnered with their regional transit authority and McDonald's to get people to McDonald's parking lots, give them the shot and then get them a meal. Yeah, it's 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 look, if the more people we get vaccinated, the safer your children are. Right. right. <laughs> There's less exposure of the coronavirus. We have we have a, a big risk coming this fall as, as the coronavirus continues to mutate. If it's not finding survivability in adults, you got to think it's going to eventually mutate enough where it starts to affect children. They're not vaccinated. So the more we can do to stamp it out, the more we do for our children, paying people with gift cards, doing whatever it takes will help prevent children as they gather again this fall from getting it. It's a pretty serious thing. It's sad that this is what it takes. But as you pointed out, this is just to get the procrastinators to move. It's not to convince anybody who's dead set against it to get it. Right. And then uh, for the Vaximillion winners, the latest winner is a University of Finley business professor. Her name is Suzanne Ward. And she said she needs to see an accountant and a financial planner, but she's already a business professor. So she's probably pretty, pretty good with, with numbers and money. She wants to put some of her proceeds towards her grandchildren's college tuition, also give money to organizations she's passionate about in her community, which that sounds very laudatory. And then Sean Corning is 17. He won the scholarship. He just graduated from Colerain High School near Cincinnati. And he wasn't planning to go to college right away because he didn't have the money. He was going to work and earn something. So now he gets to go to college. I mean, we've talked about this before, but Mike DeWine just keeps looking out with finding really yeah. good people. I'm so <laughs> suspicious. Yeah, there's. I'm sure there's a little bit of catch and release that goes on here. Oh, <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm I'm just so kidding. Suspicious. But get, you know, getting back to the discussion of getting people to get vaccinated, I do think there's another impetus that's coming, and and it's coming soon. As employers bring people back mm-hmm. to work, they do have the right to say, "You can't do this if you're not vaccinated." We're going to be a vaccination workplace. And we've talked about how many workers are just saying, I quit and, and moving on. But for people that want to keep their existing jobs, it's going to put them in a, in a tough situation because they're going to have to make the hard choice. Do they stand on their anti-vax principle or do they stay with a job that they might love? Uh, it's it's by the end of this summer, I think we're going to be in a full flame on that. After, everybody's kind of mm-hmm. looking at Labor Day as the full return to the workplace. How uh, fitting. Oh, <laughs> I know. It's just uh, interesting. Independence one. Day, Labor Day. All right. Yeah. yeah, yeah hey, look, it. that Independence Day thing, man, I was really <laughs> on. The president himself said that's the door. Oh, and then so. wait till Thanksgiving. I mean, we're going to. Oh, a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Unless we have a terrible fall. Well, Well, that's true. That's true. You're listening to This Week in the CLE.
How will Ohio replace Larry Householder, who was finally ousted from the Ohio House this week, 11 months after he was indicted as the mastermind of the state's biggest ever bribery scheme? Layla Tassi, it's a big news per week for Householder. First, he defended himself, then he was ousted. Can't close out the week without talking about him again. They got to figure <laughs> out who's going to sit in his chair. Right. So Jeremy Pelzer lays this out very well. Basically, under legislative rules, House Speaker Bob Cup will name a screening committee to review review applications and interview the applicants. That screening committee will recommend finalists to the full 63 member House GOP caucus, which in turn will appoint one of them to finish the year and a half remaining in householders term. Cup announced Thursday that House District uh, 72 residents interested in taking householder seats should submit a cover letter and a resume to a special email address set up to receive these things by 5 p.m. on Wednesday, June 23rd. And then the screening committee will conduct interviews on Thursday, June 24th. That's kind of a quick turnaround. Cup was asked whether the seat must be filled before the House adjourns for summer break at the end of this month. And he didn't quite have an answer for that. But it does seem like they're trying to uh, move pretty expeditiously. Uh, One name that has emerged as a possible replacement for householder is Kevin Black, a financial advisor and a military veteran who ran an unsuccessful 2018 GOP primary campaign against Householder. He said Thursday that he'll absolutely seek the appointment uh, to represent the House District. And um, yeah, so if anyone's interested, the email address hd72appointment at ohiohouse.gov. What's interesting is when it's a Republican vacancy, they move with alacrity. But when it's a Democratic (laughs) vacancy like Marsha Fudge's seat, they scheduled it months away. Uh, and the Republicans were in charge both times. I, I, we should mention, because we're talking about Larry Hellsolder, Bill Seitz, the defender of all things bad, he uh, he erupted uh, in a hearing yesterday against Amelia Sykes, who tried to interrupt him mm, about the voting mm. bill, uh, really scolding her. It was so bad, the Ohio Channel discontinued the live feed until order was restored. Wow. Do you think Bill Seitz might be feeling feeling a little bit spurned because he worked so hard to protect Larry Householder and only 20 of his fellow Republicans voted with him. Oh, that's a, a good theory. Go ahead. I think he probably got up on the grumpy side of the bed yesterday <laughs> I mean, this because is he's a loser. Laura. I was just going to say, um, does that not constitute disorderly conduct? I mean, if <laughs> ooh, get oh, him kicked out of the state house. <laughs> Although he would argue Amelia Sykes was disorderly conduct because she was interrupting him. It's just the, the civility went out the window. But, you know, he suffered a terrible blow. He has worked so hard. He tried to protect HB6 in the back room. He was doing sleazy deals and that didn't work. All those elements got tossed out except a couple. And he worked really hard to protect Larry Helsolder and he got obliterated. I mean, that wasn't even close. Way more Republicans voted against him than with him. Maybe that's a sign that Bill Seitz's power in the state house is waning, which I think all would agree would be a good thing. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How has legislation that has recently passed changed the scene at state and county fairs this year? Laura Johnson, you say I have the name of this wrong, so I'm not even going to use it. (laughs) (laughs) It's Tyler's Law. Um, But yeah, there are no rides at the state fair this year just because they called it early. They didn't know if they were going to be able to 
to have a fair without restriction. So it's just education, livestock, 4-H stuff. But you can have fairs in counties all over Ohio. And the Ohio Department of Agriculture gave a demonstration on Thursday so people would know about these new stricter regulations. This is the first fair season full fair season in two years because of COVID. And Tyler's Law just went into effect in November. It was named for Tyler Gerald. He was 18 years old. He's from Columbus, killed at the state fair in 2017 when he was thrown from a fireball ride, which malfunctioned Mm -hmm. due to excessive corrosion. I think all of us remember this just being like, oh, wow, and and really shook your faith in, in amusement rides. So the, but wait, 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 wait. Did you? Did anybody ever really have faith in amusement rides? <laughs> um, I always felt better about the ones who were stationary that don't have to get packed up and put on a pickup, you know, put on a semi truck and yeah, traveled which, around the country. Right, that's just what we're talking about. Right, did anybody exactly. ever think they were actually safe? Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Laura. But this this new law adopts new American Society for Testing and Material Standards, which you wonder why didn't the old one meet the standards, but all rides will be ensured to meet the manufacturer's minimum requirements for inspection and testing. They'll perform and provide documentation of annual visual inspections. They have to list locations and dates for rides stored longer than 30 days or operated outside of Ohio. They show the number of times the ride needs to be inspected, how much, how many inspectors must be involved. So Tyler's mom, Amber Duffield, was at this press conference on Thursday, and she said she worked really hard to accomplish this, and she was glad to see it. It carried out. But um, I mean, it, it's it's a, just such a sad story. And I'm glad that they're going to be safer. But you're right. I, I kind of stick to the scrambler, something that does not go up in the air. Although that would not be good either if, you know, the bolts came off of that. Yeah. Just that, that they always, even when I was a kid, I looked at those things and thought, hmm. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week. You guys have big plans for the weekend? I got to say, my grandson turns five today. So oh, we'll be, see- happy we'll be seeing birthday, him. Huh? Well, what's cool is at five, you start remembering. So all all the stuff we've done with him these past five years, he won't remember any of it. But now, <laughs> so we got to be good grandparents. Anyway, what are you guys up to this weekend? My daughter turns seven. So. Oh, happy birthday. Well, happy birthday. It's exciting. <laughs> I'm hoping the storms don't don't wreck plans this weekend because uh, they'll be bad. But um, but yeah, pool and beach, summertime. It's summertime. Let's enjoy it. It'll be over before you blink your eye. Uh, and when when does the summer officially start? Is it Sunday or Monday? It's a good question. Know. Oh, I mean, it starts <laughs> when the kids get out of school, Chris. Uh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 leave it there. We'll, we know what we're talking about. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Layla. Thank you to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. 